0: after these things. Many a good story has a new chapter that begins just there. But let me give you the background to our story. Three evenings ago, three Sunday evenings ago, the young people of Clay dramatized for us what would happen in many a household in Babylon at the end of the exile there. And uh, they were debating whether they should join those who would go back to uh, Jerusalem again. And there were fors and against. Now, where I'm starting tonight is nearly 60 years after that. Nigel and Tim Walker told us about the um, problems that the returnees had, and the building of the altar, and finally the temple. And Tim this morning talked about what Haggai had said to them, upbraiding them first of all, and then uh, encouraging them to fear not, because the Lord said. I am with you. Keep going, Richard, because uh, I've lost As I go down through the two chapters, I want you to keep in your mind two questions: What kind of man was Ezra? And what might be helpful in my own Christian life? Now I'm going to go through the chapters in some detail. So it, it would be good if you had your uh, Bible open at Ezra chapter 7. In the few Bibles, page 479, and uh, if you haven't got a few Bible near you, then put up your hand and one of the deacons will give you one. First part of chapter 7 I have called Ezra's Preparation. Now, typically, in Hebrew writings like this, the first thing we learn about Ezra is his genealogy. And in the first five verses, you have his genealogy listed. There are 16 names there, going right back to Aaron, and that's the key. Aaron was the first high priest, remember, the brother of Moses. And if a person could take his genealogy, his lineage, back to Aaron. He was in. He was a priest. No mistake. There are 16 names in that list. I'm not going to try to read them to you. But there were many more generations between Ezra and Aaron because the Hebrew word for son can also mean descendant. And indeed, the first man named there, Zariah, was probably Ezra's great, great grandfather. He had been high priest way back when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city in the very beginning before the exile. And indeed he had been beheaded then. But what the list shows is that Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron. That sets out his pedigree. And pedigree was important. Quickly glance back to the end of chapter two of Ezra. In that we have a long, long list of all the people who went up from Babylon in the beginning under Zerubbabel. And when you get to verse 61, after that long list, and from among the priests, the descendants of, and you have that short list. Look at verse 62. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Unfortunate people. They'd lost their records back then when they were deported into Babylon. And now they could no longer act as priests because they didn't have the family record. Ezra did. Go to verse 6 of chapter 7. This Ezra, this man, came up from Babylon. He was going to lead a second set of exiles who would volunteer to return to Jerusalem and Judah. Now, let's look at his background. He was a teacher of the law, we're told in chapter 6. Well versed in the law of Moses. That's the sort of man he was which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And uh, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now, just pause for a moment and think. Has that any relevance for us today? Has Ezra's attitudes Values? Anything to say to us? Any implications? But we'll go back to verse six again, because at the end of that verse is a little statement that sets the whole context for this episode that we're reading in Ezra seven and eight. It simply says, "The king had granted him everything he asked." That's all it says about it. When we come to Nehemiah, we'll see that Nehemiah sets out all that in full detail. How he fasted and prayed and went to the king and begged. But all it says here is, the king granted him everything he asked. But it wasn't Artaxerxes the king who had initiated the second return to Jerusalem. It was Ezra, who must have been in a position of great trust, who could influence the king, who could get him to write a decree allowing them to go. Some commentators think that uh, Ezra may have been minister of state for Jewish affairs in Babylon. We know all about ministers of state here. Anyway, the king had granted him everything he asked. Why? Not simply because he was in a position of trust, Not simply because he could bend the ear of the king. But here's the answer. The hand of the Lord his God was with him. Now note that. Here was the the hand of God providing for Ezra exactly what he required. And that saying becomes a refrain. It actually occurs six times in these two chapters. And we'll note them as they occur. Now next in that chapter, we have the the journey back summarized. They haven't started yet, but the the offer gives us the the, the journey back. It took four months up the Euphrates-Tigris Valley, a trade route that has been there from the times of the patriarch. Abraham took this route north, and then south or south west down to Judah. Long way from modern Iraq across to Israel 400 miles straight across but pure desert as we see sometimes in pictures from uh, Iraq these days in the news. But going up the way they did and then down meant nearly a thousand miles. Work out four months Take off the Sabbaths and it comes out about 10 miles a day. Now, of course, that's nothing. Some of you, few of you tomorrow will run the marathon. Very few of you, I think. Or even one part of it. That's nothing. But do it every day for four months. Sometimes carrying a lot of your chattels or a small child and see what a test of endurance that is. And they took four months from the 8th of April to the 4th of August. four five eight. So, travelling was long. It was also hot because they were doing it at this time of year through the increasing heat of the summer. But note, however, at the end of verse 9, this theme repeated, the refrain, For the gracious hand of his God was on him. God's guiding hand. You'll see more detail about the journey in chapter 8. So to the second part of the chapter which deals with the king's provision. Artaxerxes allowed Ezra and those who volunteered with him to go through a decree. And as I read it down through and make a few comments, I want you to look for a repeated form of words and uh, what is said about Ezra. So, first of all, Ezra's commission. Verse 11. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Now, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You were sent by the king and his seven advisers that was the privy council, to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. Just a brief comment there. There we have, in verse 14, Ezra's commission. Here's a decree from the king of kings, as he calls himself. He was to go and inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. We hear a lot of commissions of inquiry these days. There was one two and a half thousand years ago. But that was only the beginning. Permission to go. The king was going to give a lot of money when the offerings were collected. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the, the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Collect the offerings, big offerings, take them with you, and be sure that you sacrifice to the God, your God, in Jerusalem. But not only that, look at the privileges that were granted. You and your brother Jews may do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Talk about trust. Do what you like with the money. The implication is I know you'll spend it wisely, you have complete freedom. Verse 19. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now, I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of Trans Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask you. Up to, and I put these into modern. They amounts that you see at the the bottom of your uh, NIV anyway. Three and three quarter tons of silver. Twenty thousand liters of wheat. Six hundred gallons of wine. The same of olive oil. And salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence. For the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? There we get a little insight into Artaxerxes' mind. He was a pagan king. He had great empire that stretched from the eastern Mediterranean across to India, Pakistan of today. And all those various parts of his empire had different pagan gods. And he needed to placate all of them, he thought. And certainly, the God of the Jews, he couldn't afford to anger. And here was an opportunity to placate one of them, one of those powerful local deities, and do it through someone he trusted implicitly. Now, Artaxerxes' decree continues, verse 24. You, that's all the treasures of Trans-Euphrates. Trans-Euphrates, by the way, was the part of the Persian Empire in which Judah and Jerusalem fell. You, all you treasurers, are also to know that you have no authority on post, taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, note in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess. Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. King's decree, which had to be obeyed. Did you spot that form of words? Repeated 13 times with some variations in his decree. Quite amazing, I think. The God of heaven. Your God. The God of Israel. The God of Jerusalem. How could a pagan king know these terms? Was he told by someone he trusted? Ezra? Mind you, he didn't use the reverential personal title that Ezra uses just in the next verse. Verse 27. Praise be to the Lord. That's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. That's the I Am. That's the true name of the God that the Israelites worshipped. And he's the God of our fathers. He's the personal God. He's the God who's always been with us. Changeable, unchangeable, eternal. So what have you learned about Ezra? I'll come back to that. Ezra's response, of course, is one of praise. He bursts out in praise. This was everything he could have wished for. And he gives the glory to God. Praise be to the Lord the God of our fathers who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials Ezra acknowledges that it is the hand of God at work to bring about the king's favor it was God who put it into the king's heart. It was God who extended his good favor to Ezra before the king. Did you notice in the middle of that verse how the account now becomes completely personal? God has extended good favor to me. And that first person remains until the end of uh, chapter 8. These are Ezra's personal memoirs. A note Because, this is verse 28, Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, the encouraging hand of God, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. Looked at Ezra's preparation, looked at the king's provision, and now, thirdly, all of chapter 8, God's providence, because we're seeing that God was behind all of this first of all there's a long section which lists the families gathered to go now there was a much smaller number of people who were volunteering to return now as against the number who had returned with Zerubbabel about 80 years before about 6,000 people think as against the 42,000 plus in the earlier return and the comparison I'm told between this list and the first returnees in chapter 2 shows that there were a lot of relatives of those who had returned already who were going now wonder what that says within communication from the folk in Jerusalem saying things aren't bad here we heard this morning they were living in their panelled houses things aren't bad here come and join us Ezra listed the families and then he had a real shock look at verse 15 I assembled them at the canal that flows towards the Hava and we camped there three days that was just to get things straight to make sure everybody was in the caravan and knew where they were going to march or walk when I checked among the people and the priests I found no Levites there not one wonder why well I can only speculate Levites were the order down from priests and they usually had the more menial tasks around the temple these Levites had been living in Babylon they were able to have their own ground, their own farms which weren't allowed to do of course around Jerusalem they were having a good time should they go back to do the more menial tasks or perhaps all the good jobs back in Jerusalem had already been taken don't know however Ezra immediately went about correcting this omission. no Levites couldn't go without Levites verse 16 tells us he sent nine trusted leaders and two men of learning reading that I wondered what's the difference between leaders and men of learning but never mind he sent them to a, a nearby a nearby Levite colony, and there they found verse 18 a capable man, and returned with 38 descendants of Levi. He had, his he emissaries had 38 volunteers, and not only that, 220 temple servants. That's the next order down: priests, Levites, temple servants. And note in verse 20, all were registered by name. That's Ezra. Now, to what did Ezra attribute this successful outcome? To his thoroughness? To his organizing skill? To his persuasiveness? To his bullying tactics? Look at verse 18. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us. There's God's providing hand again. But they haven't yet started in their journey. They're still camped by the Hava Canal. Verse 21. And there I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And then listen to this. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So, we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Very human touch here, I think. He'd stood there before the king and he said, Majesty, The gracious hand of our God is in everyone who looks to him. Then how could he ask for an escort? God will take care of us, he said. God will be with us. God will be going before us. We're not afraid. When it comes to the crunch, of course, it's a slightly different matter. That was a real act of faith. Don't let me do it down. Ezra didn't reach his decision lightly they were carrying a lot of baggage with them very expensive very valuable baggage he didn't take his decision lightly he knew that it would involve fasting and prayer and he committed the whole matter to the Lord and they asked the people to join him and God answered their prayer let me say this in passing Acts of faith like that are not for all Christians. What to one person is an act of faith may be to another one tempting God. Nehemiah was a man of faith and prayer. But he had no hesitation in accepting an escort of army officers and cavalry from the king. That's Nehemiah chapter 2. But Ezra fasted and prayed and invited the people to join him. Are there occasions in our lives when we should be fasting and praying? Before big decisions, when problems occur, when are matter to be settled, would we ever think of fasting and praying? What about us as a church? Facing a pastoral vacancy. Facing a major building project. Where does prayer fit in? Where does fasting fit in? In the life of Ezra, it was that we might humble ourselves, verse 21, before the Lord, and ask Him. And then He says, He answered our prayer. Because protection was given. The next verses. Go to verse 24. Ezra now organized 12 leading priests to be responsible for the offerings of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of God. And what an offering. Here he lists it. And again I'm putting it into, well, not quite modern speak because that would metric tons. I'm just saying tons. I weighed them out. 25 tons of silver. This is Verse 26. Silver articles weighing three and three-quarter tons. Three and three-quarter tons of gold. Twenty bowls of gold weighing 19 pounds. And two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I wonder how many peck animals are required to take that lot. I was caught behind a a 30-ton container along Boucher Road the other day. It was vast, stretching away in front of me. It said 30 tons in the back. That's how I know how big it was. And I thought, that full of gold and silver. And that all had to be got onto the back of a Well, not a donkey. Donkeys, mules, camels. What a caravan. And then Ezra added, verse 29. I love this. Guard them carefully. You can imagine. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord. They were still standing beside the Ahava Canal in Babylon. And he says, guard them carefully until you're able to weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in in Jerusalem before the leading priests and Levites and the family heads of Israel. Now, verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he protected us. The protecting hand of God again. He protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem. Mission accomplished. And we rested there three days. You can imagine. But on the fourth day... In the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of designated priests and Levites. And note verse 34. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Talk about being thorough. No possibility here for charges of malpractice or fraud. And then, When all that was done, the people celebrated their homecoming by sacrificing, verse 35, burnt offerings to the Lord of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-six male lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And meticulous to the very last, the chapter ends. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of the trans-Euphrates who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. Well, what kind of man do you find Ezra to be? And can we learn anything that might be helpful in our own Christian lives two and a half thousand years now, later Thought I would use an acrostic on the word Ezra to draw out a few lessons. Don't know whether you find this helpful in remembering it or not. One of the wags in the preaching workshop said, "It's well you're not de- dealing with the isn't it?" <laughs> and somebody else says, "What about Artaxerxes?" But but I'm not, you see. I'm not. I'm I'm dealing with a man who's got four letters in his name, Ezra. And the first thing I think we can learn is from his example. By his testimony. By his reputation. If the king could say, Ezra, I'm authorizing you in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, then he was trusting Ezra completely. He was trusted by his employer and by those in authority. Is that the reputation that we have? Is that our testimony? Secondly, Ezra's zeal. Did you notice the word devoted in chapter 7, verse 10? He devoted himself to the study, the observance, and the teaching of God's word. Can it be said of us that we devote ourselves to the study of God's Word? But Ezra's devotion didn't stop there. It's fairly easy to study God's Word. Fairly easy. Note the word observance. Not only did they study. He put what he found in God's law into practice in his own life. And he went further. Teaching, its decrees... And laws in Israel. Now, I know a lot of us won't feel that we've been given the gift of teaching, and it is noted as a gift of the Spirit in Romans 12. But that's not an excuse. Peter makes it very clear. You know the verse, I'm sure. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So there's no excuse. Know God's word. Live it out, pass it on. Reliance, I'm nearly finished. Reliance, complete reliance on God. It's that repeated phrase I'm referring to. The good hand of our God was upon us. That wonderful refrain. Ezra could see God at work in every aspect of his life. And he expected that. God's hand was providing, guiding, encouraging, protecting. And Ezra lived in the light of that reality. Do we? Do we really believe Romans 8.28? I like the NIV rendering of it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things things in all circumstances of life God's hand is at work on our behalf A attitude his attitude to life and his attitude to his work (laughs) he was well organized he was super well organized I know we have different personalities we're different people But in the things of God, Ezra was well organized, he was thorough, he was persistent, and he did everything with complete integrity. Because you see, as far as we're concerned, the Christian life isn't an add-on extra. It's not a leisure pursuit, it's not a pleasant pastime. And I've got to ask myself, am I? Are you? as well organized and thorough and persistent in the things of God as I am, as you are, in the other aspects of our everyday living. Ezra, what have you learned about him? Can you remember the acrostic? Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you in our need this evening. We cannot set ourselves in the place of Ezra. We cannot enter into his living. But through his life and work, Lord, you can challenge us. And we pray that you will as to the example we set before those, all those with whom we come into contact day by day. As to our zeal for your word. Learning it. Acting it out. Passing it on. As to our reliance upon you in everyday life. Noting that your hand is upon us. And as to our Christian attitudes and values. As we go about our lives day by day. Lord, challenge us. Encourage us this evening, we pray.